This is a book that uh, I'm excited to go over with us this e- or this for next potentially 20-something weeks. Uh, we're also going to go into the book of Ruth as well, since it's kind of like in the time of the judges. Before we start, let's open, let's pray again for this time. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to come before you here in this particular part of the city to study your word this evening. And Lord, be with us as we've gone through this relatively long week. May you make our hearts attentive, uh, keep our minds clear, and allow us to uh, absorb your word so that it can renew our minds and change our hearts to live in obedience to you, Lord. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. The snowball effect is a term that is used to describe something that builds up over time. It is a term that is, you can actually see some of these things in like cartoons. Often you see like mountains and like cartoons characters get like smushed and get flattened. Uh, that's actually just something that I, it took me a while to realize it's actually just a term in, in fiction. It doesn't actually happen in real life. Uh, one time when I was in college, I think I shared this with some of you before, like my college friends, and we use the word friends loosely here because you'll, you'll, you'll see what they did to me. But they, told, they invited me to this trip and they said, hey, I know you don't know how to snowboard, but you should totally come. We will teach you how to snowboard. I was like, all right, cool. So we went, we got all our things, and we went up to the top of this mountain, and it was like, hey, you still didn't teach me how to snowboard. And then I didn't realize that this, by the time, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back at it, I realized like, okay, this thing's called Black Diamond, so that's like the hardest difficulty, I guess. And all he told me was, okay, all you have to do is just lean forward to turn left and lean back to turn right, that's it. And then they just left me up there. And I was now like slowly tumbling down the hill by myself. And then they lapped me, you know, it was just like put salt in the wound. They lapped me, and I thought, okay, I'm going to get them back. So I grabbed some of the snow, and I balled it up, and I was like, okay, I'm going to aim this at them, and roll it down, and I'm going to smush them like those cartoon characters. <laughs> so then I rolled that little snowball, and nothing happened. It just, just, just rolled toward my leg and just stopped right there. This term, snowball effect, it does, although it doesn't happen in real life, in terms of like actual snow, it does, is a good illustration in terms of understanding that's how sin works in our life. Sin does have the snowball effect. It's a slow build, and it's not, you may not immediately feel the effects, but it will ruin your life. The beginning of every great sin begins with small and little compromises. I'm going to define compromise this way, is giving up something for something else. And when we use it in a spiritual sense, it means that we give up spiritual growth, or we give up our, our relationship with the Lord for something far less. And usually, that is sin. Example of that would be like, oh, if I just cheat once in this homework assignment, I'll never cheat ever again. Or if I just looked at this pornography one time, I'll never look at it ever again. Or if I just gossip about this one person one time, I'll never talk back behind anyone's back ever again. And the reality of sin is just, it's never that way. You will always find yourself cheating or sinning over and over again. Making shortcuts in your life with the assumption that it will somehow not impact your life. Judges is a book that is built on the snowball effect of compromise. These little sins that the Israelites commit will have massive ramifications in their life. 
Judges is a really unsettling book. People don't usually like to preach through this book in particular because it's a really graphic book. There's a lot of murder in it, and it's, it's, but at the same time, it's, it's helpful for us because it reveals what people really are. And at the same time, it also reveals that our God is a good God. He's willing to save. He's willing to deliver us out of our own wickedness. When we look at the characters and the events in the, time, in the time of the judges, we have to understand that this is not just an isolated incident to them. And when we think about the judges, we understand that this can be us as well. And I'm not saying us as in just like a society, I mean also within the context of the church. Um, when I was kind of throwing this idea back and forth of preaching through this book, part of the reason why I want to go through this book in particular is because we live in this day and age where everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes. Now, we understand that as Christians, it makes sense for people outside the church to think in those terms. Right? You understand that people outside the church will do whatever they want. But it's a fear of mine and of all pastors and all elders to think that people within the church begin to compromise and start doing things that's right in their own eyes. Compromise always begin within the context of the local church. And my hope is that we guard ourselves from those compromises, that we protect ourselves from those little subtle sins that will ruin our walk with the Lord. Little background about this book. This book is written by, it was, is, is, it's unknown, but most likely it's written by Samuel. And uh, this book, uh, it, it details a lot of I guess one of the, like, there's no easy way to say it. it, it details genocide in this book. There's, there's, a, there's a, like, massive people that die in this book. Now, when, understand that when you see all of these Canaanites and all these other nations that get slaughtered, that these people are killed not because they're these innocent people. Don't think of these people as, oh, they're just, like, just minding their own business. All of a sudden, these, ho- these hordes of Jewish people come and destroy them. Now, these people that the, in the time of the Jews that they had to kill are, are wicked people. In fact, in Genesis 15, 16, it reads that there, the Amorites' sin did not reach its full measure. There are these people that were living in this land of Canaan, and, and Abraham asked them, what, are, what about these people, these group of people? And this was 500 years before the book of Judges. So for 500 years, God was patient with them. God was patient and merciful with them. So when it gets to the point of judges, God has raised up the Israelites enough to go into the nation to, and, and wipe them out. In fact, in Leviticus, you know, Leviticus is the book where you see all of these laws, and some of these laws are weird and bizarre to us because we don't understand the context where they're written. But in Leviticus 18, it explains that some of these, these seemingly bizarre, immoral things that they prohibit, they're there because the nations around them committed these sins. Leviticus 18, 26 to 27 reads this. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourn among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations. The land has become defiled. The people that the the Israelites will encounter are these people that are wicked. So think about all the rules that are in, that are in Leviticus. Think about all the incest that's in it. Think about all of the, the, the bestiality that's in it. These were all normal for the, for the Canaanites. And the Israelites were supposed to go in and be distinct from them. The theme of this book is degradation. And um, 
when I've, I've been reading different books on this book, like kind of like Bible survey books, and a lot of times the, the term that they will use is the word cycle, because it, it, this book does seem pre- pretty repetitive. You see Israelites fall into sin, and then God gives them over to their sin. They get afflicted for it. Then they cry out for deliverance, and God frees them. And then they go back into the cycle. But in reality, it's not really a cycle, but more like a tailspin. Because as we get through this book, you'll know that the sin, although it's similar, things get progressively worse and worse. Until when we get to the end of the book, it's a horrible place to live in the time of the Judges. Judges is, as the title states, it's, 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 it's not like what we think of Judges, not like a person with a you know, black robe and a gavel and, and you know, slamming and saying, guilty, not guilty. When we think of Judges in the context of the book of Judges, they're more like military leaders. There are people that, that, were, that God has uniquely raised up to deliver the Israelites from their bondage. And these judges are not all moral people. We'll see some of these judges, these are crazy people. Some, or some of them are crazy. Some of them are immoral. These are not like, go and do likewise. But they give you a template that even though these people are sinful and they're raised up by God, the thing that they have going for them is that they have faith in God. So these are imperfect role models, but yet these are people that even in their, in their depths of their, their, their shortcomings, they are still men of faith. There are about 13 judges here. Seven of them are what we call the major judges. They're the ones that have like a larger portion, and there's six of them that are shorter. They're just kind of like one, one, one or two verses. But there's about 13 judges here. And we'll go through each and every single one of them. And you'll see that each of them have their unique role in it. But again, not all of them are models of faithfulness. Because again, these are immoral, sinful people. So when we get to this book, these first two chapters here function as like an intro to the rest of the book. Uh, and because of that, some of these things seem, would seem out of order. Um, or something would seem repetitive. That's because this will just set the, the stage for the rest of the book. The Bible is graphic in terms of its portrayal, especially in this book, but it's interesting because even in our time when people say, oh, let's be real about everything, the Bible is perfectly, is, is the realest you can get. It shows you what happens when people choose to live in the life of sin. Sin ruins your life and ruins everything around you. So for us, for these next two weeks, we're going to go through eight realities of compromises. We'll go through four tonight and then four next week. If you want to ruin your life, just, just ignore everything I say. Just, just, just do exactly what these people do. But if you want to live a life that is compromise-free, if you want to live your life and protect your walk with the Lord, understand that there are certain realities of compromises that you need to be aware of so that you continue walking faithfully. So the first one that we'll look at is that compromise is always subtle. The first reality of compromise is that it is always subtle. Look at verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? This opening is similar to uh, the, the beginning of the book of Joshua, where it says after the death of Moses, and at the end of, in the beginning of 2 Samuel, there's also a phrase in, after the death of Saul. It's, it's, this, it's this chronological flow in the biblical narrative. And there are four stages of Israelite history. 
There's the era of Moses when he led the people. And then there's the era of Joshua. We see in the book of Joshua. And at this point in the biblical narrative, it's the era where there is no leadership. There is no king. This is a time where, where everyone chose to do what is right in their own eyes. And it's significant because there isn't anyone that can mediate for them. There isn't someone that has a regular communion with God to give them instruction on what to do. Moses had that, Joshua had that, and later on, David would have the same thing. But the people in the time of the judges did not have that. And it was a foreshadow of the problem that is to come. Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up, shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Now, I do want to state that when you see these names, they're actually tribes. When you see, when you see the tribe of Benjamin or Simeon or Judah, it's not like two guys decide to go up by themselves. It's actually the entire tribe as a whole. Judah was the biggest tribe, and, um, and it had the most prominence because that's where the line of the Messiah would come from. And Simeon is the smallest tribe. And what's unique about these two is that in their past, their, their ancestors that were actually brothers. Uh, Judah and Simeon were actually related, or they were all related, but they're, they're close in terms of like they're not being half-brothers or anything, but they're actually fully, uh, full-blooded brothers. And they were supposed to go up to this place and fight together, and they, and they went to take these land. So verse 4, Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Pezzarites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Pezzarites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. This is... Uh, it's just basically they went out, they, they went, uh, to summarize, they just went out, they found this king, and then they, uh, they caught him, they cut off his thumbs and toes. And the reason why they did that was because without thumbs, you're unable to hold a sword or, or pull an arrow or shoot an arrow. And without toes, you're unable to walk. So they basically rendered this king impotent, like incompetent. They're, he's unable to lead and able to uh, guard uh, his people. So the king, look at the king's response. Before we freak out and think, oh, that's so gruesome, look at how the king responds in verse 7. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. This king begins to give all theological on everyone. They, he, he explained that this is a poetic justice. He's, he's done this to all of these other kings and they, he treated them like dogs. He, in his own mind, understands that what, is, what he's experiencing is totally just. He deserved this. Now, the NASB, when he uh, translated, so God with a capital G, but in the original, it's, it's more like a general term. He's not saying that he became like a worshiper of Yahweh. Rather, he's just generally saying that the God has rep- God of the universe, whoever it is, repaid him justly. And there should be a lesson here that acknowledging that God's hand is behind everything in life doesn't make you a worshiper of God, the one true God, in your own heart. You know, sometimes people will say, God bless you, or they say, oh, God has done all these miracles. But that doesn't mean that they are truly followers of Jesus. That's what this king was. He's just saying in general terms that what he's experiencing 
is totally fair. This king was polytheistic, so he's probably one of those kings totally did the right by him. He acknowledged that God's hand is behind everything, and he knows that what he's experiencing is totally just. Verse 8, Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterwards, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kirathirabah, and they struck Shiasha and Arama and Talmai. So this little portion here at the end, Judah went in, they took all of these places. It seemed like they started off so well, right? I mean, they're like killing this, they're like, they're, they're, they're taking off the thumbs and the toes of this king. They're like owning all these other people, getting all of these lands. So what is the problem here? The problem is actually, if you look back in verse 7, the king said that they have done as I have done, as I have done, so God has repaid me. These Israelites began to do warfare like the rest of the world. God did not tell them to cut off thumbs and toes of people. God just told them to destroy them. There was not some sort of like keep, thing, keep them there and see how long they can live. It's not a torture thing. It's just end their life. Remember back in the time of Joshua, they were supposed to go around and in the walls of Jericho, they, had, they did the whole little trumpet thing. Right? They were supposed to fight for God according to God's, in God's terms. And at this point, they began to look like the world in the way that they dealt with the, with the people of the world. The Israelites began to deal with the world like the world. They began to, their, their actions and their thought process, process already seemed like the Canaanites that they were overtaking. I wonder how many of you attempt to resolve your life problems with the methods of the world. If you think that being like the world will make you immune to the world, you are woefully mistaken. When you begin to adapt to the thinking of the world, your entire being will eventually be like the world. This is a call for all of us believers to have biblical discernment. I remember when I was in college and even young career time, there would be people in my life that would say, I'm going to date this non-Christian. And they would use Bible verses to try to justify that. They'll say, well, God said that it's not good for man to be alone, and this unbeliever is interested in me, so I should totally go for them. And there are even other passages that say that, oh, if this unbeliever is married to a uh, believer, the believer can be a blessing to the unbeliever, or I can use my life to, to win them over. You're, these are people that are just trying to make compromises. They, they ignore other passages so that they can justify their own sin. And whatever avenue in your life, whether it's cheating in your classes or lying in your career, these small compromises, no matter how small they are, they are there because you trust in your own work rather than trusting in God's word. Obedience and faithfulness to God's word means that you obey all of God's commands. Compromise is subtle in our lives because it's often focused on immediate success rather than how it affects our walk in the long term. Compromise is subtle, and it will hurt you if you choose not to guard your mind and your heart from sin. You need to guard your mind and heart with God's word. Not only can you ruin your life by, by allowing the subtleties of compromise to wreck your life, but another reality of compromise is that it will cause decline. Compromises causes decline. Verse 11. Then from there he 
then from there, he went against the inhabitants of Debir, now the name Debir formerly known as Kirathsephir, and Caleb said, the one who attacks Kirathsephir and captures it, I, uh, I will even give him my daughter Ashkara for a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Ashkara for a wife. Uh, verse 14, then it came about when she came to him, and she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she elated from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This little short story here uh, begins, really shows you the first of the judges here. And Caleb made this challenge. He said that whoever can take over this land, I will give them my daughter to marry. Now, I know in our culture that seems like, oh, they're treating his daughter like property. But as a father, I think it's kind of cool. Because think about this. He's saying, it's like if I said this. If someone wanted to pursue my daughter, she's actually here right now, but she's too young to know what I'm saying. Don't bring this up when she's older. (laughs) But it's like if someone came up to me, he's like, I want to date your daughter. And I say, hey, okay, you want to date my daughter? You want to marry my daughter? You need to go and take over all of Oakland. If you can take all of Oakland, you run all of Oakland, I will give you my daughter. And that's kind of cool, because then that shows a few things. It shows that he's a valiant warrior, right? He's brave, he's bold, he must be cunning enough to do something like that. And if he succeeds, like, okay, you could totally protect my daughter. Now, this assumes that the person is a believer, so, you know, I'm not saying, like, all pragmatic stuff. But, you know, if this guy is a believer and he can take Oakland, my wife is looking at me like, okay, don't do that. But that's kind of what's going on. I think it's it's cool. But notice that, uh, you know, he, uh, he... he eventually goes and then uh, he gives them this land. They, uh, he goes and he, he takes over this land and he, give them, he, he gives them the, the daughter. And then at some point, and then Negev, just for us to realize, it's like a desert. You know, there, it's, uh, what she's asking is actually, she's asking for water, which again, it doesn't really bother us because we have like water fountains. But to them, the desert is a big deal. It's interesting that you notice in verse 14 that she elated from her donkey. So Othniel was brave enough to take over an entire city, but wasn't brave enough to go and ask the father-in-law for favors. Which again, as a father, I think there's a healthy fear for father-in-laws. I think it would be good if my future son-in-law is intimidated by me. And, you know, my daughter asks me for whatever, yeah, I'll give it to her. And that's exactly what the father did. He gave her more than what she asked. He gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And this phrase, what do you want, it sounds kind of like, crude in English, but in the Hebrew, it's, it's way more gentle than that. It's more like, how can I help you? How can I serve you? And so he gives them this, this, these, two, these two wells for them to live in this desert. What's the point of this? What is the point of this little scene here? The scene here is to show what life is like under the blessings of God. There is success in war. They're able to be safe in this land. There are marriages going on. This is a high point in the time of the judges. It all goes downhill from here. The time, there will be progressive decline in the entire society of the nation of Israel. This section of scripture, it allowed, you actually see that the woman was able to travel across the Negev. It was, it was safe for her to travel but later on in this book, it becomes very difficult for women to be in the land of Israel, to be in this, in, in this, in this area. 
Later on in this book, you'll see a woman that will fight for all the men. The men were too cowardly, and then the woman had to go step in and fight for them. And God sees that as a, as a cursing on the men. Samson will eventually, through his own sin, cause one of his wives to get burned alive. Jethro, he, after making a stupid vow and doing what is right in his own eyes, lose his daughter and had to sacrifice her. At the end of the book, there was a woman that gets, that gets gang raped and then gets butchered up and sent across to all the 12 tribes of Israel. Any nation that does what's right in their own eyes will end up harming others. And at the end of this book, it is not safe to be a woman in the time of the judges. I think even when we think of our culture, that's what's going on now, the whole LGBTQ movement. You know, they're, they're saying that you are you're whatever you feel. And one of the things that they didn't think through was like, what happens when you're in combat sports? If you're in the Olympics, they have to make a decision. Is this person really a female or is this person really a male? Because there's now a whole bunch of men that are claiming to be women and now are going into these combat sports and beating natural women. And now men naturally have these have natural advantage because of all the, the way that their body is. And now all these men are slowly become, taking the, or formerly men, whatever, are, are taking the ranks and all the records from all the women. Now the Olympics are trying to figure out, is this the right thing? Like, are these, should we go with the moral revolution or should we separate these, these different individuals? Men naturally have advantage, and when they, when they do what's right in their own eyes, inevitably women will suffer for it. This short scene here shows the Israelites how far they have fallen. Compromise always leads to decline in your spiritual life and your regular daily life. In your own life, compromise will cause decline both in your walk and in your life. Compromise will leave you a sense of, of a bitter regret in your life. You will ask yourself, what would my life be like now if I was not lazy back then? What would my marriage be like now if I was faithful to the Lord in my singleness? What would my life be like now if I was obedient to the Lord? Regrets are are people that look back at things and wish that they did not commit those things. In the life of a Christian, compromise will cause regrets and wonder what would happen if you were just faithful and obedient to the Lord. Don't live a life of what-ifs due to the compromises in your life. Rather, live in obedience to the Lord and be blessed by the Lord. Not only can compromise ruin you because it's subtle or that compromise that causes decline in your life, but the next reality of compromise is that it will ruin, it will cause unfaithfulness in your walk. Compromise causes unfaithfulness. Look at verse 16. The descendants of of, of Kenites Moses' father-in-law went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephna and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah, or destruction. And Judah took Gaza with its territory in Ashkelon, with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. The Israelites went, and they were able to destroy and take over these lands. In verse 19, now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out 
from there the three sons of Anak. Caleb received this, this special blessing because back in Joshua, he, God promised them this, this certain particular land, but you'll notice that they were able to conquer all of these places. They weren't able to completely conquer because they were afraid of iron chariots. How is it that they're unable to win even though God was with them? They're unable to do it mainly because they don't fully trust God. They had, they had, they had failed in terms of trusting in the Lord who had given them success in the past. Remember, this is the generation that saw the walls of Jericho's fall. This is not a question of whether or not they have the right God. They saw God perform all these miracles in the wilderness, and they failed to trust God because of iron chariots. How can they be afraid of something so small when God has done so much for them in the past? Again, it's not because the Israelites did not have the ability, but their compromise made them unable to act on faith in God. Remember, this is a time where there were a whole bunch of other pagan gods, and whenever there's victory, they will think, oh, my God is real, and my God, and, and, and when they overcome, they say, okay, well, my God is better than your God. But when they fail, when the Israelites fail to take them over, it gave the pagans increased faith. The pagans' faith in their false god increased as the Israelites' faith in their god decreased. Their compromise made them unfaithful and untrusting God's power and promise. What about you? What about you today? What are areas in your life are you lacking faith in God and not acting in faith? You don't trust God, so you don't take a risk. There is a connection between ineffectiveness in life and lacking trust in God. You don't have because you don't ask, you don't have, and you don't ask because you don't believe. If you ever wonder why you can't seem to have victory over sin, it may be because you don't trust the promises of God. These Israelites had the means and the promises, but they chose not to act because they did not trust that God will keep his promise. I wonder if, if that is some of you. Maybe you're anxious in life about your future because you don't believe that God actually cares for you. How can you trust God with your greatest need in terms of salvation, but not trusting God and all the other things in your life. This is where in Romans 8.32 tells us that if God was willing to give up his own son, wouldn't he not give us everything else that we need? And I think it's unfortunate that the prosperity gospel kind of tainted our idea of prayer. You know, prosperity gospel say, oh, God wants you to be happy, so you just ask him, he'll give you whatever, and give you everything. And that's true, but for us, we should understand a right view of prayer, we understand that whatever we ask of God, whatever he gives us, whatever his answer is, is what's best for us. If you ask for God, can I have this job? And he says, no, you should praise the Lord for it because that is God's will. If you want to date someone, you ask someone and she says no to you, praise the Lord because that person is not God's will for you. But at the same time, you need to pray in faith and you need to act in faith. You need to be bold in your prayer. Pray for the salvation of your loved ones who, have, who seem to have a hard heart against God. God is able to save. Whether it is your job, your marriage, whatever it may be, ask God in faith and then act in faith. The difference between the prosperity gospel and the way that they pray and the way we pray is that we understand whatever happens to us is for our good and for his glory. So ask. Ask in faith and an act in faith. When you fall into sin, inevitably you will start doubting God. 
you'll doubt God whether or not he can actually is able to do this in your life. Trust that God will do it. He is working in your life. God loves you. He cares about you. But when you fall to sin, you doubt those promises. You doubt the truth of God's word. Not only can you ruin your life by the subtlety of compromises or the declining effect of compromises or unfaithfulness to the Lord, but lastly, compromise leads to moral failure. Compromise leads to moral failure. Verse 22. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name, was, now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. Again, this is, they're trying to take over this one land. They find someone, and then they told them, Hey, we want to treat you kindly. That's actually, again, not what they're supposed to do. Uh, but they did it anyways. And then he showed them the secret entrance, verse 25. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go free. Now this, this little story should sound familiar. This is kind of like what happened in the beginning of Joshua, right? With, the, with Rahab, with the prostitute. They went in, there were spies, and they look in. And, and uh, the difference, though, is that Rahab actually repented. Rahab said, like, I know that your God is the real true God. We heard about what your God did to, to the Egyptians, and our hearts melted. But these people, they just told them, okay, well, there's the entrance, and they left. And look at verse 26. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built the city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. So this one family left the city and, and renamed, it just rebuilt the exact same city, or not the exact same, but they rebuilt the city and named it the exact same name. They didn't deal with, with these people the way it should. Israel did not get rid of these people. They just kind of shuffled it around. But they didn't realize that by doing so, they're letting sin and these, worship, uh, these idol worshipers continue to, to persist in the land. They just moved them aside thinking it will not affect their life. I uh, was listening to a sermon the other day, and I heard this pastor speak about how he was preaching on, on how if you are a Christian, you need to, to cut off all the sin in your life, and you need to get rid of all your sin. And at the, after the message, he said that this, this one person came up to him and said, wait, so really I have to give up all of my former life things, all the things that were sinful? He's like, yes, that's exactly what I, what I just said. He explained, like, I have this pornography collection. Do I have to get rid of that too? He's like, yes, get rid of it. It's like, okay, but can I at least sell it? And the pastor said, no, you cannot sell it, because if you sell it, someone else will consume it, and they will fall into sin. I don't know what happened to that individual afterwards, but it was just an interesting story that he thinks that just by moving things around, that is perfectly okay. And it's the same way for your own life. Just because you move some sin aside and not have to deal with it does, does not mean that it will not come back and haunt you. You need to cut off sin in your life, no matter how small it is, how, how great or how small. You need to get rid of the sin in your life. You can't just push it aside. You need to deal with it. You can't move sin around and think that it's okay because one day it'll come back. We'll see that in a sec. And look at this, verse 27. Uh, when you, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll just we'll look at verse 27 in a sec. But the problem with sin, and just in general, when we think about sin, is that it affects you, and, it also, and oftentimes it will harm you in ways that you're not expecting. 
a few months ago, or actually a few, last week I was looking up on the news, and there was a man named Michael Pasek. He's a Czech person, and he adopted a lion. And I don't know how he got this lion, but he kept this lion, these two lions in his backyard. And he kept them, he was raising them. And in my mind, as I was reading this, like, okay, I'm imagining this person like, just like petting this lion and then feeding the lion and watching Netflix with this lion and then, and then going on walks with this lion. And he actually did go on walks with this lion. He was walking around with this lion on a leash and someone on a bicycle accidentally hit the lion and the police came and they're like, oh, what's going on here? It's like, oh, it's just a lion. I got hit by a lion, I ran into a lion. And apparently the, the authorities didn't take it away because they thought to themselves, oh, whatever, you're not abusing the animals, totally fine. You could keep this lion in your backyard. And it wasn't until three months from now, three months ago, several months ago, that this lion ended up killing its owner. This, this person probably thought that, well, I, I fed this lion, I, I watched TV with this lion, I walked this lion, I treated it so well, and he underestimated what the lion is capable of. He thought that if he took care of the lion, that the lion would love him in return. Animals don't operate on reason, they operate on instinct. And I think that's how some of your sin is like in your life. It's like that lion. You feed it, you pet it, you watch Netflix with it, you walk around with it. You underestimate that there is you underestimate that when you when you nourish and you care for sin, that it will not destroy you. Your sin may seem fine now, it may even seem fine tomorrow or next week or even next month. But eventually it will cause you great harm at the time when you least expect it. Kill sin while it's still young or sin will be strong enough to kill you. Sin, in reality, shouldn't surprise you. It, should, it may surprise everyone else in your life, but it should not surprise you because you know your own heart. You know the sins that you're letting yourself indulge in. But sin will eventually escalate. Now let's look at verse 27. And now, now, okay, from 27 to 37, I'm going to just read this whole portion, but I want you to be attentive. Look for a common phrase. Look for recurring things in this portion here. So verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and his village, or Tekna and his village, or the inhabitants of Dor and his village, or the inhabitants of Iblium and his villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in the Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Neholo, so the Canaanites lived among them and became subjects to forced labors. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko and the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or of Axzib or of Helba or of Aphak or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anan, but lived among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and the Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to live, allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shablim. 
but when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The board of Amorites ran from the ascent of Akarim from Selah and upward. So what is that recurring phrase? What is that recurring phrase that you hear in this, in this section? You could participate. I'm, I'm like... Yeah, right. They did not drive out the inhabitants. Over and over again, you hear that seven times in this entire section, they did not drive them out. It's not like they did not have the ability because they said that they put them into forced labor. They were, in a sense, outfaithed by all these other, other nations. And there was an escalation because remember that story of that one family? They, did, they chose to let, let them go, and eventually it was just one family. It progressively escalated to multiple cities and nations of people. They couldn't get rid of one family, and eventually now they couldn't get rid of everyone else. They first started with one family and now multiple cities, and if you compromise once, it will always escalate. Sin always escalates. Little compromises have huge consequences. Maybe you think you can cultivate sin and no one will know, but eventually your sin will be found out. Sin will ruin your life. You must never compromise and fall into sin because sin will not let up. Listen, sin will not compromise. Sin will mess up your life. Sin will never give up. Sin never surrenders. Sin never stops. Sin will always escalate. If you're discontent now and you don't repent of your discontent, you'll be discontent with other areas in your life. If you're not content with your singleness and you dive into sexual sin, it'll it'll grow into other sexual sins in your life. If you can't control your tongue now with the little things, you will eventually talk bad about everyone else. Whatever the sin is, it will escalate and it will ruin your life. Sin doesn't compromise, so don't compromise your walk with Jesus for sin. Sin never tells you the cost of it up front. Let's do this for example. If, let's say you took me out for dinner. You say, Pastor Ray, I want to take you out for dinner. It's like, okay, let's go. And you tell me, and when we get to the restaurant, like, you can order whatever you want. And me... Being a literalist, I say, literally, you're saying that I can order whatever I want? You say, yes, Pastor Ray, I think you're cool. You can order whatever you want. It is on me. And I say, okay, cool, thanks, man, thanks. Now, you understand when you say something like that, it's a double-edged sword. Because there's like the natural thing, you just order one meal and, you know, each of you order one meal or maybe dessert or drink. That's like the norm, right? But I could also do the other thing where I order every single thing on the menu and you will have to pay for it. And let's say I did that. Let's say... Like, I looked at the menu, said, oh, I like this. And the waiter comes, and he said, what would you like to order? And I said, I'd like to order the number one, number two, number three, number four. I order everything on the menu. Order all the appetizers, all the desserts, even all the vegan stuff. I order everything. (laughs) At what point would you think to yourself, I should not have made that, I should not have told Pastor Ray that it's on me? Is it after I ordered the fifth steak? or the 12th dessert, for sure you will feel it when the check comes because it's going to be this huge number on the bottom. And if you're able to pay for it, it will still have ramifications in your life. And that's how it is with sin. Sin will always mask its cost and its consequence. Sin will always lure you in. If you know how much sin will cost you, in the future, would you give into the sin today? Some of you, it will cost you your ministry. 
Others of you will cost you your marriage, your, your future marriage. Some will cost your testimony to your non-believing friends and family. Sometimes your compromise will, will you'll lose gospel opportunity. Sometimes your sin will cost you your career. But what is worse about sin that is it will, it will ruin your walk with the Lord. So you need to watch your life. Examine the scripture and see if your life matches up with what God expects of a Christian. And for some of you, when you think about your life, you don't see your life as making compromises because you're not a Christian. You haven't given your life to the Lord. So when you're doing what you usually do, when you fall into sin, even though you know that it's sin in the Bible, it doesn't affect you because you're not a believer. You don't have a new heart. Your heart is still hardened to the gospel. So it's not really compromise. You're just living the way that you're supposed to as a rebellious person against God. But at the same time, you understand that God following Christ will cost you. It will cost you your life and also cost the consequences of your sin. Following Jesus is not easy, but the result of following Jesus means that you may not be able to have the pleasures of this world, but you have all of the riches of Christ and all of eternity. Our God is a God that forgives all sin and all compromises. You need to repent and turn to him in faith. And for some of you who truly are saved, and you're making room for sin in your life, you need to kill that sin in your life. That sin will cost you, and the satisfaction will not last. It'll cause you misery, just like how it caused the Israelites' misery. And ask God for grace for, for you to identify those sins in your life so you can put those things off before the consequences of those sins hurt you, root out the sins in your heart. As you go about your weekend, as you go about the Sunday and the next week, really evaluate your own heart. Don't make room for compromises. Remember that compromises are always subtle. They always cause decline in your life. They will always cause you to be unfaithful to the Lord. And lastly, it will lead you to moral failure. That's the first four of what compromise does. And next week, we'll look at the next four in Judges chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for you and that you're so kind and always delivering us from the consequences of sin through the work of your son. And Lord, I pray that for us, you would continue to enable the Holy Spirit to convict us of this, just the compromises in our life that we think is not going to affect us. Give us sober minds and a, a, a right eyes to see your your, your word in reflection to our life. Give us an honest assessment. May, may we be people that, that don't feed our sin, that don't coddle our sin, but to really kill sin at its roots. And we want to do these things because we understand that these sins are what led you to the cross. And what, and what a pity it is for us to go back to the things that, that ended up killing your son. Lord, I ask that you, you allow us to walk faithfully with you, walk closely. Give us a greater desire to search the scriptures, to study it, to meditate on it, to be changed and transformed to, to the image of your son, Lord. We ask that you be with all of us now as we go through our, our weekends, as well as just later on tonight as we go through our discussion questions. Uh, may you move our hearts 
um, to be faithful to you, Lord. Um, allow us to seek accountability if we need, but allow us to also remember that your eyes see all things, and we understand that our sin is ever before you. Lord, allow us to be faithful to you and turn from our sin quickly so that we, it doesn't ruin our life. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.